Welcome to the Art of Wet AMD, Drug Choice and the Latest Data, a mini-series from New Retina Radio. Dr. Arshad Kanani leads a roundtable discussion about modern approaches to wet AMD therapy with Drs. Christopher Fuller, Nicholas London, and Christina Wang. This is an editorially independent podcast supported by Novartis. Now, let's join the discussion. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the second episode of Wet AMD, the art of drug choice and the latest data. This is the second episode out of four. Last time we discussed treatment options, switching therapies, and dosing strategies. Today, we're going to discuss phase three data and also review a case with Dr. Wang. In future episodes, we'll discuss pipeline candidates and we'll wrap up the series with a great discussion of safety. So now let's get into our review of phase three data. I want to welcome my faculty members, Dr. Christina Wang, Dr. Nicholas Lundell, and Dr. Chris Fuller. Welcome back, guys. Thanks, Arshad. All right, Christina, go ahead and uh, tell us uh, about the Hawk and Harrier data and top line results, and how do you implement that data in your practice? All right, thank you very much. So brolicizumab is, as many of you know, the latest anti-VEGF to be added to our drug cabinet for neovascular AMD. And it's a 26 kilodalton single chain antibody fragment that inhibits VEGF-A. And it has a molar dose concentration of 11 times that of a flibercept. So I always say it's a small molecule, but it really packs a punch. It was recently FDA approved in October of 2019. And it was studied in the registration phase three trials, Hawk and Harrier, which randomized over 1,800 patients with treatment-naive wet AMD to either brolicizumab Q12 weeks or a flibercept Q8 weeks. And the way this study was designed was that patients uh, received who were in the brolicizumab arm received three monthly loading injections, and then they went on to a quarterly schedule unless there was evidence of disease activity, which was based on a combination of pre-specified visual and anatomic criteria. And if so, that at that point, they were adjusted down permanently to a Q eight-week schedule for the remainder of the trial. If you were randomized to a flibercept, you were just treated Q8 across the entire time. The primary efficacy outcome in Hawk and Harrier was the change in BCVA at 48 weeks, although study duration was 96 weeks. And what they found essentially was that brolicizumab was non-inferior to a flibercept with letter gains in the six to seven letter range from baseline. The second point to take away is that there was better drying on OCT with brolicizumab versus a flibercept, as we mentioned in the last section. And then more than half of the eyes receiving brolicizumab six milligrams every 12 weeks were maintained on that quarterly dosing through year one, although that number was decreased to 39 to 45% through two years. And then I know we're going to talk about safety during our last section, so I won't go too much into detail. And that is an important component, I think, in taking the Hawk and Harrier data and translating it to real life. But let me just say that overall, the adverse event rates were similar between the two arms for the most part, but that post-marketing cases of intraocular inflammation, retinal vasculitis, and vascular occlusive events were reported and have really, uh, I think, changed the way people are perhaps using this drug compared to when it first came out. But again, to be discussed later. Thanks, Christina. Great overview. So. I think uh, what you're telling us based on the data that uh, brolocizumab dries the retina better than a flibercep, and it also is more durable than a flibercep, but obviously there is a difference in terms of uh, safety 
with the rare events of retinal vasculitis and retinal artery occlusion um, that we are going to address later in the safety section, which is the last episode of this series. So let's go to now, um, uh, Nick, a uh, quick question for you about Hawk inherrier data. Knowing the data, knowing the safety, tell us how you're using brolicizumab in your practice and how are you consenting the patients for it? Thanks, Arshad. So uh, yeah, I use brolicizumab in my practice um, fairly infrequently, but I do use it. And I use it more in patients that really want to get a, an extension between the visits. I've got um, most of my patients are, are very happy with, with how they're doing it, whatever interval it might be, uh, average about nine to 10 weeks. But some patients are very, very anxious to extend it out as far as possible. And I always tell my patients that I'm a bartender. I give them all the options. I try hard not to tell them exactly what to do. I tell them the risks and the benefits of all of the options, and I let them decide. The patients that I use brolicizumab on, I do have a little more of a thorough discussion about the risks, and I do talk about the inflammation. I tell them that there are rare events of intraocular inflammation, and that some of these rare events can be quite serious, even causing vasculitis, even causing a stroke in the eye, an arterial occlusion. And I tell them that we watch patients very closely for this, but it is a real risk that we are just learning about right now. Uh, and, I, and I sort of leave it to them. I give them as much information as I can, but I leave it to them to make the decision about whether or not it's worth it to them to do that. I think those are great point, uh, Nick. And Chris, I know you are a, a big user of brolicizumab and obviously your practice has changed since the rare events started to come out. How are you using brolicizumab in your practice in terms of patients? What patients are you using it on? You know, Nick was trying to extend durability, but obviously, you know, if the patient is stable, uh, you know, they may not want to switch and take that additional risk, which again, we're going to talk in the safety section. But what if you had a patient that is on monthly ILEA, which is your go-to drug, as you said, and have persistent fluid, when do you plan to switch and how do you switch that patient and what kind of discussion do you have? So yeah, and I had originally planned on porting over many of my treatment needy ILEA patients and occasionally Avastin Lucentis patients to Bayavu uh, when it was introduced and approved for use. And I'm still doing that. Um, I'm able to cite for my patients now the case studies available online, the rest report, and my own personal experience with the drug. I've had one big time vision loser uh, back in December. Um, at the time, I didn't do an FA, had no uh, obvious appearance of vasculitis. Uh, vision has remained at 2400 from 2070, but I do wonder about that. And so I'm fairly conversant and can speak from personal experience when I share my enthusiasm for the drug, but also the concern and its pitfalls. And, and like Nick said, I mean, I, I like that bartender analogy. I, I like to give patients options. Although uh, I had originally planned on using it for all comers, I, I'm now again kind of steering clear of monocular patients unless they put a gun to my head and just demand Bayavu. I think the risk at this point is still a little too great. So I think you make great points, Chris, that, you know, I was in the same situation where I was using it for durability as well as disease control. And I think now most of us are kind of, and, and naive patients too, personally, initially, but now until we find out more about what's causing this, you know, Novartis has, uh, you know, initiated inquiries in a think tank and we'll address that in the safety section. But until we find out more information, I think, where the drug belongs is if you want to use it, it's, it's patients with persistent fluid, vision loss with frequent anti-VEGF injections. So great discussions, everybody. Let's move on to Dr. London. Nick, go ahead and um, 
give us the latest uh, Archway phase three data of the port delivery system. Great, thank you, Arshad. Yeah, let me um, sort of back up a little bit about the, the port delivery system or PDS coming from Genentech Roche. So this is a surgically implanted reservoir at the Pars Plana, and, and I feel a little weird talking to you, Arshad, about it since you're probably the king of the port delivery system. I implanted more of these than anybody else in the world. So you can uh, certainly let us know some of your insight, but it's engineered to be a permanent implant. It's about the size of a grain of rice. And um, when you fill this port with, with drug, it's a reformulated and higher concentration of ranibizumab that slowly releases the drug via passive diffusion through a membrane. There's a little membrane at the very end of the port inside the vitreous cavity. And that membrane is uh, very specialized to allow the passage of ranibizumab in particular, which is gonna be an interesting thing because this is a, a platform. So the, the PDS is probably gonna be a platform for other drug delivery. But again, that membrane is specialized for ranibizumab. So that's gonna have to be taken into account. It's not gonna be as, as easy as just filling it up with, with whatever drug you might want to release over a sustained amount of time. Uh, the PDS has now been studied um, in several studies, but the phase two study and the phase three were ladder and archway. Phase uh, two ladder was a, a study of about 220 patients. These were previously treated neovascular AMD patients. And the primary outcome was the time to first implant refill. There were four groups. The first three groups were groups of the PDS and they were in sort of dose escalation, 10 milligrams per mil, 40 milligrams per mil, 100 milligrams per mil, which is the, the dose that ended up being the most effective. And these were compared to monthly ranibizumab injections. In that 100 milligram to mil group, which is what they decided to move forward with in Archway, uh, the median time to first refill was nearly 16 months. And over 80% of patients, or approximately 80% of patients went six months or longer without needing a refill based on re refill criteria. So this study really informed the phase three Archway design which then mandated a Q6 month refill to ensure that we catch the majority of patients who might need uh, a refill without needing rescue treatment. And the BCVA gains in ladder were, were similar, very similar to monthly ranibizumab. So this led into Archway, uh, the results of which were just recently presented, um, I think in late July at ASRS. And this included over 400 previously treated neovascular AMD patients. Again, the PDS was implanted with refills every six months and again, compared to monthly ranibizumab. The primary endpoint in Archway was the average of the BCVA, uh, best, or best corrected visual acuity, week 36 and 40. And this was met um, as the Q6 month PDS refill was non-inferior to monthly ranibizumab. There was an initial dip in BCVA that was expected and fully recovers. And then the line of the visual acuity gain overlaps the ranibizumab curve thereafter throughout the, the duration of the study. And interestingly, in this study in Archway, um, the vast majority, 98.4% of patients that were on the PDS did not require a supplemental treatment between those Q6 month refill intervals. And the OCTs uh, were very stable. We did not see that sort of seesaw or zigzag effect on OCT. It was a nice, uh, nice OCT improvement. So, um, you know, now we've got the PDS, which, you know, Archway is going to wrap up and the, the Rest of the results will probably be out later 2021 and maybe come into our hands in 2022. We're not quite sure about that yet, but it's a, a surgical device. Uh, it promises a longer duration of treatment. Uh, it uses a drug that we're very familiar with, 
Um, but we have to sort of take this into account. We've, we, you know, we're used to treating these wet AMD patients in the office with, with medications. And now we're gonna be left with the decision about whether or not to take these elderly patients, sometimes sicker patients, to the operating room. So it's gonna be very interesting to see how this is impl implemented in clinical practice. Uh, who patients, which patients are selected for the PDS and which are maintained on, on other in-office treatments. We don't know how it's gonna affect our OR times. We don't know how it's gonna affect our clinic times. And these are all gonna be very interesting things to, to encounter, especially when we see the rest of the drugs that are, that are coming out and some of the things that we're gonna talk about, including gene therapy and some of the longer acting therapeutics. So great overview, Nick. I think uh, clearly, as you showed that uh, in terms of visual acuity and OCT outcomes look like poor delivery is uh, very similar, equivalent and non-inferior. That's the word I was looking for to gold standard monthly ranubizumab injections. And you know, my experience has been the same in a large number of patients I've done um, place PDS. I think they've been happy to not get injections. But again, um, it's a new paradigm of treatment. We are taking, uh, you know, making this disease surgical again. What are the implications? We're gonna talk about safety in our last episode. But great presentation of the data. So I have a, a question for Christina and then I'll have one for Chris. So Christina, what kind of a patient do you think um, is gonna be uh, a candidate for PDS in your practice given that the data Nick showed uh, pans out uh, in our practices and, and obviously um, you know, the safety looks the same as the archway trial? Well, I think first and foremost, it's gotta be a good surgical candidate. And you know, it's hard to have the discussion of all of these agents without addressing safety. I know we're, we're talking about that at the end in our last session, but you know, these are risk benefit trade-offs that we have to consider. So it's gotta be somebody who you know, is not a glaucoma patient with really friable conge that's been pulled up over a tube. That's not gonna be an ideal candidate for this type of surgery. So uh, that would be my primary uh, patient, but Otherwise, it's going to be someone who's required very frequent anti-VEGF therapy in order to achieve disease control. So perhaps someone who's required ranibizumab monthly and can't get even to five weeks out on a treat and extend basis. And I have a handful of those patients. You know, these are the types of patients that may tremendously benefit from this type of uh, new device that can really uh, significantly extend that durability. And we're talking about bars that we have not reached before six months, you know, and, and like Nick said, I think what's really impressive is almost 99% did not need rescue therapy before that first mandated refill exchange. I mean, that's very, very impressive. That means potentially people could be going much longer than that, as we saw in ladder. No, I think those are great points, Christina. You know, it's interesting how you would put uh, a patient with frequent treatment uh, need in PDS. Uh, uh, you know, for me, um, you know, I look at the latter data, as you said, I mean, remember 80% went six months or longer. It was just that to cater to those 20%, they put a fixed refill. So if I have a patient, let's say comes in every two months or every, even every three months, and they can go, you know, 16 months without a refill. I think your point about the buy-in from the patient is really crucial. I think as physicians, again, I'm going to use Nick's, uh, analogy here as a bartender, even though I don't drink, I can serve drinks, I guess. And, uh, and so, so you have to give the options and risk and benefits. And, you know, there are patients who come in every two months. And as Chris said earlier in our early, earlier episode, they absolutely hate coming in. So I think it's a good option. Uh, we as physicians have to 
uh, give, uh, you know, our take on it. But I agree with you. I think really we can get those frequently treated patients go out longer uh, safely. And I think your point about conjunctiva and how to care for it, it's important too, because I think some of the safety in the trial, um, especially the endophthalmitis, three out of four, which we're going to deal with later, were because of conjunctival uh, retraction. So Chris, uh, in West Texas, in uh, you know, when you get those uh, sandstorms in Lubbock, you have an uh, implant in the eye, you have a lot of farmer community, you know, they're getting caught in out, they can get stuff in the eye. Where do you um, see a poor delivery system fitting in in your treatment algorithm? And I was going to disrupt your uh, clinic flow because you're set as a high volume injection guy. How do you foresee those challenges? So to your West Texas point, we are a tougher breed out here. <laughs> I had a guy with a two millimeter pupil. I did a beautiful Yamane lens fixation and subsequently injected Ozardex. And he wound up with the Ozardex in the AC because he had been face down in a well for 10 hours doing some sort of farm work. And so I always learn to ask what you're going to do after we do an injection because people here are engaged in some very kind of manly things. Um, but I've been very excited about port delivery. Uh, and, you know, I've always thought our options for AMD lag behind those options we have for diabetes. You know, with diabetes, not only do we have, you know, wonderful kind of armaments of intravitreal drugs, we have now two durable steroid options and we have surgery. And so for me, it would be kind of an, a natural thing to at least consider surgery, even though this is generally kind of a more elderly, infirm subset. Uh, and so I very much look forward to PDS if it's approved and proven to be safe, because I'd like to have some other non-injected options, uh, at least for a patient to make an informed decision about. I think those are, those are really good points, Chris. I think uh, as a field, we're advancing and there's a lot of new options coming in. And there's some options that uh, were closed uh, to be here, but uh, you know, may not make the cut. So let's talk about, uh, Chris, uh, you're gonna tell us a little bit about uh, Cedar Sequoia and Maple Studies and your top line um, you know, conclusions from those trials uh, for Abicapar and, and, and just update our audience about uh, what was seen in those trials. Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll be quick. This data is largely sourced from the October issue of Ophthalmology, Efficacy and Safety of Abicapar and Neovascular AMD. And it summarizes the 52 week results of Allergan Cedar and Sequoia phase three trials. And it also serves to highlight the promise and pitfalls of our obsession with engineering ever smaller and ever more concentrated molecules to combat wet AMD. And DARPINs are just such molecule and Abicapar is the first DARPIN therapeutic. An infinitesimal binding protein, only 34 kilodaltons versus 48 for Lucentis, that gloms to VEGFA with 90 times the affinity of Lucentis and boasts nearly double the half-life at 13.2 versus 7.2 days. And why is all the fuss? Because our PAT survey from 28 scenes showed that 56% of retina specialists are thirsting for more durable AMD therapeutics. And in breaking news, 100% of my patients here want the same. And so Cedar and Sequoia, to get to the specifics, enrolled 1,888 patients with wet AMD. Abicapar was divided into two uh, arms, one Q8 after three monthly loading doses and another Q12 versus Lucentis given every month. And that comes out to eight injections for the Q8 group over year one, six for the Q12 group, and then 12. Curiously, they defined stable vision in this study as less than 15-week letter loss, and there was a slight non-statistically significant advantage for Lucentis at 96% who could maintain that, whereas only 91% in the quarterly Abicapar group did the same. 
potential issues, which will be discussed in a later episode, include that of intraocular inflammation. The FDA has already uh, kind of highlighted this and uh, instructed Allergan to go back to the drawing board with a new formulation I believe Nick will discuss. Great. Uh, so I think, Chris, excellent summary. You know, um, obviously, we're going to talk about safety later. Uh, we, we know that uh, FDA, uh, you know, uh, issued a CRL a complete response letter to Abicapar at this point. And I think Allergan and Abby are looking into their options to see how they can uh, bring this to the market. And, you know, obviously, as you said, Maple, you know, was designed to, um, you know, look at a new refined uh, technique uh, to manufacturing process to decrease uh, the rate of inflammation, but it was still uh, 9% in this open label uh, study. So let's take a break then, and then we'll be back uh, with the case in a minute. Hello, everyone. Welcome back uh, from the break. Now we're going to have a case discussion with uh, Dr. Christina Wang. Christina, please go ahead and present your case. Thanks very much, Arshad. So this is an 80-year-old female patient of mine with a 10-year history of non-neovascular AMD in both eyes, for which I followed for several years now myself. She's also pseudophagic in both eyes, and she has primary open angle glaucoma as well in both eyes. Very, very compliant patient. She comes every six months on the dot. She never skips a dose of her ARIDS vitamins. In her social history, I think it's important to note that she doesn't drive. She's caring for a sick spouse at home and she does enjoy reading. I had seen her just a couple of months before the presentation that we're gonna go through, but she was doing fine at that last visit. And then suddenly a few months later, she called the office and said that she was noticing decreased vision in her right eye. And lo and behold, we brought her into the office and found that her vision had fallen to 2060 from her baseline of 2025. If you look at her OCTs, on the left side is what her OCT looked like the previous visit, and it looked just fine. She had the drusen, as we had seen for many years now with her dry AMD. Her vision was 2025 at that time. On the right side of the screen is her OCT from this visit of note, where she was having the visual acuity changes. You can see that now, while she still continues to have these drusen and drusenoid PEDs, she also has some new subretinal fluid, which is significant for a conversion to the neovascular form of age-related macular degeneration. So as I do for most of my patients, when they come in for a new diagnosis with this conversion, I'll start them on anti-VEGF and load them up with three monthly injections. And that's what I did. I decided to start her on a Flivercept every four weeks. So you can see here now, on the left is her OCT at presentation. On the right side, that's her OCT following three monthly aflibercept injections. And you can see that her visual acuity is moving in the right direction. She's now improved to 2040. The patient also appreciated that change. But she still continues to have some persistent subretinal fluid even after these three loading doses, even though overall she has shown improvement. Of note, she was also really struggling to get to these appointments. And you might be thinking, well, it's only been three so far, but these were really troublesome for her. And they really point, I think, at the social burden that faces a lot of our neovascular AMD patients. So every time she would come, she would have to find a caretaker to watch her husband at home while she made the trip into Houston. And that would take hours if you include the wait time and the drive into the medical center, et cetera. So it really was a big deal. And after this appointment, she asked me about a new drug that her cousin had told her about. Her cousin had read about this new shot 
that could potentially last longer. And of course, she was referring to brolicizumab. This was at the very beginning of 2020. So after extensive discussion, we decided to change her treatment to brolicizumab. And you can see here, following four weeks after her first brolicizumab injection, she completely is dry. There's no more residual fluid. Her vision's also improved almost back to baseline. She was very, very pleased. Interestingly enough, this visit straddled right around the time when all of the safety concerns were starting to arise in February, March. And so what's interesting is when she came back, I knew that I would have to revisit the consent process with her. I also did a complete slit lamp and dilated fundoscopic examination to ensure that she didn't have any inflammation and she did not. She did want to continue with the medication. She was very pleased uh, that she was you know, doing better. And I decided not to reload her due to her social challenges. So because she was completely dry, I gave her brolicizumab number two and I extended her out to eight weeks with return precautions. Here she is eight weeks now after her brolicizumab number two, and you can see she remains completely dry. Her vision is uh, stable at 20-30 plus, and again, there's no evidence of inflammation on thorough examination. I give her brolicizumab number three at this visit and ask her to return in 12 weeks with return precautions, and she's been doing very well on quarterly injections, and it's really made a significant impact uh, in her life with this treatment burden reduction. So just really quick, and I'll let you take the discussion here, Arshad, but just a couple points I wanted to briefly mention to the panel in case you had any comments. But, you know, I think this patient's interesting because it straddled a time where we were actually starting to learn about some of the safety concerns that were arising around brolicizumab. So uh, be curious to hear about how other people have dealt with patients who were maybe started before the safety risks had emerged and then afterwards. And then surveillance for intraocular inflammation. I do a slit lamp and dilated fundoscopy examination every single visit now for these patients. Uh, I don't know if any, anyone does anything more extensive like an FA, but I always return precautions. I always review those with patients carefully. And then all of my staff and trainees that I work with are aware that if a patient on brolicizumab calls with any sort of complaint, it warrants automatically an in-person visit. We can also talk a little bit about variations in approaches to treatment interval extension. I think that's an interesting topic with these longer duration therapies is how do we decide what intervals to bring them back in because not all of them are gonna be able to be used at a monthly basis forever. And then if you do switch patients to another anti-VEGF, do you tend to reload them or not? That's another interesting question. And finally, if we have time, you know, responding to a patient-initiated request for a specific drug, I don't think this comes up that often, but I think a lot of our patients are very well-read, are educated, they know what's going on, especially with the rise in direct-to-consumer marketing. And so they do know that there are products out there. And how do you respond to that? Uh, do you give them what, what they're asking for? I'd be curious to hear what people think. Thank you. Great case, Christina. I think really highlights um, the efficacy of bolicizumab in terms of drying the retina, also highlights the durability. And I think you presented the Hawken Harrier data to us. I think this is kind of like a real world case where you actually were not controlled with frequent aflibercept and now you are going you know, anywhere from eight to 12 weeks. So I think what you are doing in terms of managing patients, I think most of us are doing looking for inflammation, dilating these patients, having the office uh, be aware if they call with uh, symptoms, they need, uh, they need to come in. So I think I have a quick question. Um, for uh, Chris, uh, Chris, uh, when you start somebody or switch somebody to brolicizumab now that that's most of the patients, do you load them um, 
or or you don't. I know Christina didn't load. I usually don't load a uh, switch. I just kind of follow them and to find the sweet spot. But what is your management strategy? Yeah, only for treatment naive patients do I load. Um, I, I tend to be kind of all about instant gratification. So if they've done well with uh, Q2 month ILE, I want to see if we can go to 10 weeks with with Bayavu. So I typically do not load. In fact, I don't think I've ever done that. Great, great. And then Nick, uh, quick question for you. I know you have a pretty highly educated population in San Diego. Um, and this is a great question Christina posed to us. I mean, how do you respond to a patient initiated request for a specific drug? I think you're the right uh, person to answer that. Can you tell us how you address that and whether you just say yes and go or you kind of sit down with them and have a discussion? Yeah, Arshad, that's a great question. So I always use this as an opportunity to sort of sit down and, and re-educate the patient. If they're coming in and they're informed, it tells me they've been doing some research and they, they really are kind of invested in their care. And they've also have some questions about their care. They've been sort of thinking about it. So I realize that's an opportunity where I need to kind of sit down and re-educate a little bit. Um, I must not have done it perfectly the first time around. So I, I, even though we're busy, I sit down and I take, you know, two to five minutes and kind of go through all of our FDA approved options, all of the drugs available to us. And I talk about my thoughts and, and they're subjective for the most part, some of the benefits, pros and cons of each of those options. And I, I just have a discussion. I tell them if, if this is a drug that they wanna try, I personally feel that all the drugs that we have that we use are very effective and work in very similar ways. The efficacy of the drugs is quite similar. So I tell them it's absolutely no problem. And in the vast majority of cases, I do not mind switching to another agent, but I do so after a thorough discussion. I don't just say, oh, you want to go to ILEA? I'll switch you to ILEA. Great uh, comments, Nick. Um, so I also want to remind our uh, listeners again uh, that they can check out the images from Dr. Rank's case on itube.net. I also want to remind that there are more episodes uh, for this uh, series and they can listen to the first in installment of this episode in the podcast feed. Thanks again to my great faculty members here, Dr. Savang, Fuller, and London. Um, I want to say goodbye to the listeners. Thank you. Thank you.